0: Welcome to the Phase Change Podcast Series, Episode 1. I'm Robert Densmore. Music by Scott Buckley. So you've made it through those first weeks when shops were running out of food. You made it through the initial lockdown and all the list-making of self-improvement tasks you were going to check off. You made it through the tough middle weeks when it took all your willpower not to scroll through headlines on your phone every time you went to the loo. Checking on parents, grandparents, children in their gap year stuck in Australia, trying to get fit, trying not to panic eat, trying to read a hundred classics. You survived months of talking heads going on and on about the quote-unquote new normal. And then you survived the first weeks of freedom outside lockdown. The anxiety of going out, like in public, Crowded motorways, crowded beaches, and now maybe you're wrestling with the fear of the great return of COVID and what another lockdown could mean for you. Well, chemists talk about phase change all the time. It's very likely you had to learn about it in science class, though you may not remember what it means. Phase change is simply a physical change in matter. It's when ice melts into water or water evaporates into steam, and these phase changes are significant in the world around us. Sometimes these changes are good. Sometimes they don't seem so good. And the key things that affect these big changes are temperature and pressure. Now I firmly believe that we are living in the midst of a phase change. I think it will be one of the biggest ones most of us have experienced in our lifetimes. And I think it has forced many of us to go through our own phase change in our own life. Mental health professionals often talk about stress and resilience, and they often talk about how we can shape our reactions to stress so that stressful events don't stop us from being productive. I'm not really sure that's the way it works, though. The problem is is that we think of resilience as a kind of resistance to stress, and stress is this negative influence in our lives we can get caught in vicious cycles trying to combat stress until this becomes the focus of our lives and before we know it we ourselves are defined by the stress we're perpetually trying to overcome i'll give you an example when british soldiers first started being evacuated from the trenches in world war 1 many of the the first casualties they were seeing were showing physical symptoms that were mystifying medics. Severe palsy-like symptoms, shaking, slurred speech, in some cases, complete loss of all motor control. And medics couldn't find any cause. These soldiers hadn't been shot or wounded by shrapnel. Over time, they began to understand, however, that it was something that these soldiers experienced on the front lines. It was trauma, which is an extreme form of stress. But one of the things that puzzled them was that as soon as these soldiers were removed from the front lines, from their units, their comrades, and they were labeled infirm, they got worse. You see, what they learned is that while the experience of the violence of war was a a shock to the system, being forcibly removed from that environment reinforced, at least on a subconscious level, maybe even a spiritual level, that these soldiers could not overcome the sum of their experiences. And so many were disabled for life. Until doctors discovered that recovery rates were much higher for soldiers when they they were kept near the front lines. And and medics explained this with a simple acronym, PIE, P-I-E. Proximity is the P. Keep soldiers close to the front, just out of harm's way, but don't ship them back home immediacy is the I. Identify the illness and treat straight away. And expectancy is the E. Expect the patient to make a full recovery. After this treatment was put into effect, 80% of soldiers who experienced shell shock made a full recovery. And that's compared to 50% in World War II where the pie principle was not used. Now, Combat trauma is an extreme form of the experience of change, but take note, there's a lesson here. If you can be led to leverage the change that you experience for a better future, that change, that stress, that trauma, ceases to define you. You are no longer a victim of stress. The fact is, what I call phase change which is what we experience in changing environments and difficult seasons, this is part of being human. Now, it may not be part of the human story in psychiatric terms, but it certainly is in biblical terms. This series is about facing that change head-on. Some change we will have already gone through, turbulently against our will And we need to come to a reckoning with that. But the other kind of change is the one that looms on the horizon. It's expectant. We can see it coming, but it hasn't arrived. And so there needs to be planning and preparation for that kind of change. As we kick off this podcast series, we're going to launch straight into this episode, Episode 1, The Season of Discontent. I think that there are many of us who are now living in a season of discontent as a direct result of what's happened over recent months. Like chemical reactions, we go through life sometimes feeling at the mercy of forces around us. We can feel the pressure increase, we can feel the temperature rise, and we may even be aware of things forcing us to change the problem comes when we won't or when we can't come to terms with it. The season of discontent is defined by feelings of listlessness, dissatisfaction, anxiety, depression, hopelessness, a deep sense of feeling unfulfilled. We can often feel this about our own life, but you know, more often than not, we project these feelings... ...onto those around us and sometimes the the ones we love the most. And so the season of discontent can become dangerous... ...because we start to look for answers to our stuck situation... ...in trying to change or control others. If you think back to our example of the World War I vets... ...their instinct was to run away from the situation as far as possible, and it was to stick to a narrative of hopelessness, lack of control, weakness, failure. Often, they would lay the blame on those around them, officers, medics, nurses, politicians, not to say that any of those weren't to blame in some measure, but in the process of laying blame, these vets gave up all hope of affecting recovery in their own lives and the same is true for us our survival instinct leads us to a place of laying blame at the feet of others this always seems a much easier prospect than dealing with the baggage in our own lives i certainly f- feel this about my experiences you know and i sometimes see this in people who are in their first couple years of marriage they may feel that something is not right their house, their job, their children, and they begin to think that maybe the problem is in their partner, maybe it's in their children. And in an overt way, they may try and shut them down, like in conversation, where one person continually talks over the other, or dismisses their ideas, or even tries to tell them what to do. It could be more passive, where one person makes comments to their spouse about nitpicky things, You left the loose seat up again. You bought full fat milk. You know I hate full fat milk. Why don't you take up running again? You know you've put on a few pounds. These kinds of actions may make us feel like we have a bit more control in the moment, but they actually damage trust and love. Oftentimes we may even feel bad ourselves after we say these things because deep down we know that we've skirted accountability. We haven't held ourselves to account for the love, joy, or lack of those things in our own lives. And deeper down, and this is where I want to focus, there may actually be signs of discontent within us. For Christians, the Holy Spirit is big on relationships. Relationship is the way we experience God on a daily basis, through prayer, worship, and reading the Bible, These actually are all investing in relationship. They may seem like solitary acts sometimes. And some people may feel like they're just doing them out of a sense of duty. But in reality, it's relationship. When we do these things, we allow God to speak to us. He may say something to us in prayer. Give us pictures, dreams, or nudges. And through worship, He reinforces the things He's passionate about. And in reading the Bible, he can point to the big story of what's going on in the world, what he's doing, and where we fit in that. And this kind of relationship with God is is replicated, or it should be, in our relationships with other people. And, I would add, in our relationship with ourselves. Let me repeat this. Relationship with God is replicated... In our relationships with other people and in our relationship with ourselves. The Apostle Paul talks about what relationship should look like with God and with other people and with ourselves when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and this is verses 22 and 23. What Paul is really saying here is that he can tell where God is active in people's lives by looking at their relationships. If our relationship with God is defined by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, then our relationships are rightly ordered. They're in good working order, and they're fruitful for us and for others. You can get a sense of this when you're around other families. I don't know about you, but... Uh, If you know families that argue a lot or fight a lot, you can tell almost as soon as you enter the room that things are not quite right. It's literally hanging in the air. Now, I often look at people closely who begin to express tones of discontent with their own lives and especially when it involves others. And I tend to think that something deeper is going on. When you get in there and start... (laughs) messing around with the dynamics of relationship and you you get the heavy tools out you know the spanner the lock wrench the ball peen hammer and uh you know for you passive aggressive types the sandpaper when you get the tools out the implied understanding is that you're going to work on that other person and you're going to fix them or you know at least angle grind their edges um that's bad that is not good First off, it's not loving. And we know that because it doesn't prosper the other individual. If you think like Paul, that other person is made to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, love, joy, peace, and all those other great things. What you're about to do to them when you get the tools out is you're about to damage that fruit. And if it's severe enough, It will damage that person right to the roots. Now, most of us understand that that's not good. That's not not really what we want to do to our husband or wife. So what's the answer? Well, looking back at Paul, what, what he says in Galatians, we have to believe that the fruit of our relationship comes from God. It is the love of God that powers our relationships and prospers them. And when God is at work in our relationships, we see the fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Because these things are in God's nature. It's who he is. Going one step further, if we really examine what God's relationships are like, we only have to look at Jesus If you go look in the New Testament, in a Bible, in the letter 1 John, the author there talks about what real love is. And you'll see he doesn't say, you know, hey, make sure your spouse lives up to their side of the contract. He doesn't say, keep tabs of how much childcare you're putting in and then hold your partner to the same number of hours. He doesn't say, well, when you feel like you're not getting everything you want or enough out of the relationship, just bail. And he doesn't say, Love yourself first, and from that place, love your spouse. This is what he says We know love by this that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That is cosmically different way more different than what you'll hear people say who've grown comfortable in their own discontent. Because they'll say, What's in it for me? They will lead every proposition, every decision, every commitment with those five words. What's in it for me? And that's just not who God is. God serves. Jesus makes himself a servant. He puts himself right down in the mess with us and he loves us through his action. And that act is self-sacrifice. It's self-sacrifice. That's the model we're given for a good marriage. Self-sacrifice. It's out of that that we find joy, love, and peace. So buy your spouse some flowers. Hey, men like flowers too. I love flowers. Better yet, ask them what they would like to do on the weekend rather than looking for ways to slip off and do your own thing. Take on the thing that you know is hard for them. If you've got you know, young kids, change the nappies. Take out the rubbish. Help with the homework. Whatever it is. Take on that thing as an act of service. And you know what? I guarantee you will find that the more you practice this, the more you exercise this servant muscle, the stronger it will grow and you'll find joy in it. So let me leave you with these three things. Number one, discontent is not inevitable. You have a say, and your actions speak louder than words, either for good or for bad. Number two, relationships are not transactions. Stop asking, what's in it for me? And number three, real love is service. I'd love for you to get in touch with your own experiences. What you've found has worked and what hasn't. A few of you have already gotten in touch and I'm going to be sharing some of that on my Instagram feed over the weeks ahead to keep the conversation going. Look, this is a tough subject. But our strength, I really believe our strength comes from our vulnerability. And... As a follower of Jesus, I firmly believe that our vulnerability is actually in God. Much love to you guys. Have a good weekend. Send the questions in. God bless.